have a Bible, <clears throat> excuse me, you can take it and turn it to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, and we will be in verses 26 through 40. We've covered uh, the first part of the book of Acts uh, last Sunday, and we'll finish up the uh, first part of Acts 8, I should say, uh, last Sunday, and we'll finish up uh, the rest of Acts 8 this afternoon. In an article from Christianity Today, Mary Ann Jeffries relays the account of Charles Spurgeon's conversion. Uh, if you don't know Spurgeon, Spurgeon was known by history as the uh, as the Prince of Preachers. He was a, a powerful pastor in London in the 19th century. And um, Jeffries said that he told this story over 280 times in his sermons. That's good encouragement that you can repeat some things. Um, Jeffries writes of Spurgeon about his, his deep sense of need for deliverance before he came to Christ. And this is when he was just 15 years old. She tells the story like this. It says, because of a snowstorm, the 15-year-old's path to church was diverted down a side street. For shelter, he ducked into the primitive Methodist chapel on Artillery Street. An unknown substitute lay preacher stepped into the pulpit and read his text. Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Spurgeon's autobiography records his reaction. This is a quote from Spurgeon. He had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text, and there was nothing needed by me at any rate except his text. Then stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery and said, That young man there looks very miserable. And he shouted, as I think only a primitive Methodist can, Look, look, young man, look now. Then I had this vision. Not a vision to my eyes, but to my heart. I saw what a Savior Christ was. Now I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe and I also understood what it was to believe. And I did believe in one moment. And as the snow fell and I rode home from the little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told of the pardon I had found, for I was white as the driven snow through the grace of God. Spurgeon's story of salvation reminds us, of course it reminds us of the power of Christ to save us, but it also reminds us of God's sovereign hand in all of the details of life. Even those that seem mundane or accidental, like walking down a street that you normally would not. It also reminds us that God often uses unlikely, normal people in everyday situations to accomplish his great purposes in the world, just like he used this leader of the church who may have woken up in my mind that Sunday morning with no thought that he was going to be preaching a sermon that day. And the story reminds us too of the Spirit's leading, that the power of the Word of God and the, the power of the Spirit to work together to have a great effect on someone's heart and life. The story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, 26-40 emphasizes similar themes. We see the, the specific leading of the Spirit in life's situations and the way that he causes the lives of people to intersect so that men and women might come to see the truth of the gospel. But we see the lives of, 
of two normal men meet in a powerful moment. Up to this point, Luke has recorded, uh, we've seen these accounts of large numbers of people coming to, to faith in Jesus. But here there's a story of a divinely orchestrated conversation between just two guys. A conversation that led to the salvation of the eternal soul, and not just that, but the opening of the door of salvation to many others. As the book of Acts continues to describe for us and call us as well to join in on the never-stopping, ever-increasing, spirit-empowered spread of the good word of Jesus to all people for the glory of God, this account from Acts 8, 26-40 shows us that being a part of the spread of the gospel in the world doesn't always mean public sermons and mass conversions. That the message of salvation is not always spread through miraculous signs or courage in the face of persecution. God's work often spreads through private conversations and the salvation of a single person as we as his children are faithful to walk by the Spirit in everyday life. Galatians 5.16 tells us to walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But walking by the Spirit not only keeps us from, from gratifying the desires of the flesh, I think this text says to us, walk by the Spirit and you will be used by God in unlikely places and unforeseen ways. We'll take that as our big idea this afternoon. Walk by the Spirit and you will be used by God in unlikely places. This account reminds us that when we walk through life with our eyes open to the Spirit's work, He will use us in unlikely places and unforeseen ways to spread the good word of Jesus to all people. This story then serves, I think, for us as a wake-up call. If we're a follower of Jesus, it, it wakes us up and it asks us to see how active God is in every part of our lives and how He can use us wherever He has us if our eyes are open to his leading. It's an invitation for us to be aware of the Spirit and to be ready to ask questions and answer questions of the eternal souls that we meet every day in life. And to be so full of Jesus that he overflows into every part of our lives and every conversation that we find ourselves in. I think if we're a follower of Jesus, we all want to be used by the Father in eternal ways, in, in amazing ways, and this text shows us that daily walking by the Spirit makes that possible for all of us. So walk by the Spirit and you will be used by God in unlikely places and unforeseen ways. With that in mind, let's read Acts 8, beginning at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem. The Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chair, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? 
and he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself? Or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Walk by the Spirit, and you will be used by God in unlikely places and unforeseen ways. Let me remind you that Philip was one of the early leaders in the church, or deacons, that was set apart by the apostles in chapter 6. And he, along with many others, had just fled Jerusalem because of the persecution that had arisen from his fellow worker Stephen. Uh, and had arisen from the death of his fellow worker Stephen, I should say. Uh, the passage begins with an angel of the Lord speaking to Philip and instructing him to head south to the desert road that connected Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, this may have been some sort of a dream or a vision, but it could simply have been a, a clear impression from the Spirit. The, the wording is different, but it seems to be the same thing as the leading of the Spirit that we see later on in verse 29. I even wonder if this is kind of an Old Testament phrase that, that the angel of the Lord spoke to him, and we see the Spirit's leading. Is Luke in some way trying to connect those two things? I don't know, but either way, he's being led by the, the Spirit. Now, geographically, Philip would have probably been north of Jerusalem. They have fled from that persecution that had arisen. Uh, and if that's true, then he would have had to travel back south a little bit, or at least get near to Jerusalem. And then he would have ended up on this road that headed southwest from Jerusalem. If you can imagine where Jerusalem is um, on the sort of a little bit to the east in Israel, he would have traveled southwest down to this road, went down to Gaza, which was on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Gaza would have been probably one of the last key stops on the way out of Israel and into Egypt. And so while this is a, a desert road, it's probably somewhat of a fairly well-traveled road. And yet, however much traffic was on that road, this is quite the change of scenery for Philip. Uh, he had left the buzz of Jerusalem while it was happening there. And we remember last week that he had been in this Samaritan city performing great signs and seeing people come to trust in, in Christ as Savior, even, work, even working alongside Peter and John. But now God sovereignly directs him away from the hub of activity onto some desert road. But we see that Philip doesn't really question God's leading. He's told to rise and go in verse 26, and verse 27 tells us that he rose and went. He is unlike Jonah, who God told to rise up and go, and he rose up and fled because he didn't agree with what God was going to do and God's desire to save 
Nineveh. But here we see that Philip trusts God's leading. Philip, Philip obeys, even if the Lord has taken him to an unexpected and even an unexciting place. It's hard to know exactly where on the road God took Philip. And that's probably because God wasn't taking Philip to a specific place. Rather, God was leading Philip to a particular person. We know that Philip's purpose was just to meet this one person because once this man is converted and baptized, God miraculously removes Philip from that location and sends him to a city that's just north of Gaza, Azotus. And then Philip from there just keeps preaching. But he was sent to this place to meet this man, and then the mission was over. So who's this guy that Philip is being led to? He's introduced in verse 27, and we find out a good bit of information about this guy. Let me give you four things that I think are important to note about him. First, he was an Ethiopian. He was an Ethiopian. This could mean that he was specifically from the African country of Ethiopia, though others simply just meant that he was from Africa, um, that some people just call all Africans Ethiopians or something to that effect. Either way, he's an African man that's traveling in Israel. Uh, beyond his ethnicity, we're also told, second, that he was a eunuch. He was a eunuch, meaning, in the most simplest terms, meaning that he had been castrated. This was almost certainly not a decision that he made for himself. But rather, this was an enslaved man who the, the people who claimed to own him had had him castrated probably at a very young age, such that it would have had significant effects on his development through adolescence. This was a practice that, uh, this practice of making a slave of a eunuch was seen as a way to cut down on issues between male and female servants. And it was also seen as especially helpful if a man was placed in charge of a ruler's harem, that that was an important thing to have to Those are the facts of what it means for him to be a eunuch. But having sort of explained that, let's also acknowledge that this is a terrible thing to do to a human being in the image of God. To not only say that you own him, but then to mutilate his body in such an intrusive, offensive, and consequential way. To, to take away his freedom, and then to alter his development as a man, and then to take away any hope that he would have of having a family of his own. We should recognize as we look at this Ethiopian man that he has been treated like an animal, not like a human being. He's been treated like a commodity. He's been used. He's been abused for the benefit of others. He has been deeply wronged. And what was done to him was evil. So he's an Ethiopian. He's a eunuch, which would have had significant impact both on him personally, but also on his standing within society. The third thing I would say is he was well-respected. He was well-respected. That's sort of an all-encompassing way to say a few different things. Um, we find out that this man was specifically in charge of the treasury of Candace, a queen of Ethiopia. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right or not. But So there's this idea, though, that while he was horribly wrong, he's also highly trusted in the position that he's been given. With that trust must have come some reward. He's on this trip that seems to be for personal purposes. It's a personal pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Um, 
We also find that he's riding in his own chariot. He's able to read. He has a, an education of some kind. And not only that, but he's acquired a, a, a copy of the scroll of Isaiah, which would have been a handwritten copy that not everyone would have been able to get their hands on. Which leads me, just to a brief digression, to say that we who have been given an education, if you have the ability to read, and some of you kids are learning how to read, if you have the ability to read, and you have a copy of the Bible in your own language, for each of us, not just the kids, we are blessed. We represent a small fraction of the church throughout the ages, and we should never take the blessing of being able to read and have the Bible in our language. We should never take that for granted. It shouldn't be your only motivation, but some days it would be sufficient to say to your heart, you know what, I should pick up my Bible and read it just because I can because I can read, and because I actually own it in so many people will. Well, short digression. Back to our friend. He's an Ethiopian. He's a eunuch. He's well-respected. He's an educated man and trusted with great responsibility. And finally, he's a worshiper of God. He's a worshiper of God. We find that he was traveling from Jerusalem back to his country after having gone to Jerusalem to worship. It's best to probably think of him as a, a God-fearer which was an individual that had an affinity for and appreciation of Judaism and who observed many of the practices and traditions of the Jewish faith, such as pilgrimages to Jerusalem to worship. Uh, but these folks were not necessarily full converts to Judaism. In fact, it would seem that this man may have not been able to be a full convert. As a eunuch, Deuteronomy 23.1 seems to give some sort of prohibition for eunuchs Entering the congregation of the Lord. And while I don't know everything that that would entail, it just shows us one more thing that was taken away from this man when people decided to make him a man. That according to Deuteronomy 23 1, he could not enter into the congregation. So see this man. He's an Ethiopian. So we would imagine a man who's an African. He has dark skin. He's an Ethiopian. He's a eunuch. He's a well-respected servant, and he's a worshiper of the one true God. And the scene described is of him in his chariot, reading aloud from the scroll of Isaiah. So he's just like us. He's on a long road trip, and to pass the time, he's going to read. Like we all wanted to, right? So I hope you can kind of see him in your, in your mind's eye, rolling down the road, reading the book of Isaiah. And once you see him sort of in the chariot, then we can take our eyes out of the chariot and look outside, and there we see Philip. And Philip is walking down the exact same road. It reminds me of Casablanca, all the desert roads and all the towns and all the world. Philip seems to be walking down this one. It's something like that, right? And in this, this moment, this chariot is rolling by, and the Spirit says to Philip, go over and join this chariot. I don't think it was an audible voice again, but simply just a clear impression that this is what he was supposed to do in that moment. Have you felt that prompting of the Spirit in your life? The, the sense of, of knowing what God would have you to do in a particular moment, that, that leading of the Spirit as you walk by the Spirit. Philip had that sense, the thought that he had been brought to this desert road for this particular purpose. He's been brought to this place for, for this moment. And as with the call to rise up and go, Philip obeys the Spirit. He runs up alongside the chariot. Chariot. 
mind and walk by the Spirit, and you'll be used by God in unlikely places and in unforeseen ways. And above the sound of the chariot, he hears this man reading from the prophet Isaiah. I just wondered, in my mind's eye, what it looks like is that the Ethiopian is reading, and he sort of looks up from the scroll, scroll and there's this guy kind of jogging alongside his, his chariot, Philip sort of waves at him, and then smiles and says, do you understand what you're reading? Simple question. Do you understand what you're reading there in the book of Isaiah? And the Ethiopian reveals that the, the Lord is drawing him. He, he responds so humbly. He doesn't say, get away from my chariot. He doesn't say, yeah, I got it all figured out. He says, how can I? How can I unless someone guides me? I need help. And as he says that, he invites Philip, who's a complete stranger, to join him up into this chariot with them. The text is read, this great text from Isaiah 53 that foretells that Jesus, who is the conquering king from the line of David, is also the suffering servant. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It takes away the sins of the world by dying. So when he's asked who this passage is about, Philip explains that as Isaiah was talking about the Messiah, and the Messiah is Jesus. He doesn't simply expound on Isaiah 53, though. He begins with that scripture, the text says, but then he goes through the Old Testament to show his new friend, Jesus. Luke, with these words here, calls to mind another conversation that happened on another road. It's the road to Emmaus from Luke 24, where Jesus spoke of himself from Moses and all the prophets. And now Philip is doing the exact same thing, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is Lord and Christ. I wonder if this man had maybe been to the Passover feast. That's maybe what he was coming from. And Philip tied the work of Christ to that image of the Passover. Maybe even this man had heard about Jesus while he was in Jerusalem. How could he not? And maybe he'd heard about the group of Jesus followers that, that, that were forming. And Philip, walking by the Spirit, wove all of that into a message about who Jesus was. Now take a step back, because as we read this, we might think, well, you know, if my co-workers were reading the book of Isaiah, I have no problem sharing the gospel with them. You know, if I heard my neighbor over the fence listening to a Billy Graham sermon while he was doing yard work, I'd have no problem saying something to them about the gospel. We can think that Philip has sort of tossed a softball here, that he can just kind of knock it out of the park, you know. That if we were presented with a similar opportunity, we would do the exact same thing that Philip did. But would we? And do we miss things like this? Would we respond in the same way that Philip does? Would we ask the questions that Philip did? Would we have an awareness of the Spirit that would get us to the place that we would be led up to the chariot hearing him reading in the first place? Would we have the boldness? Would we have the willingness to set aside the plans that we already had already made that day because we're on the road headed somewhere else when the Spirit told us go alongside that chariot and see what And could we take this man from Isaiah 53 and elsewhere to Jesus? I think often people say that they don't share the gospel because they don't know what to say. And that's something certainly that we need to work through. We need to think about how we can present the core of the gospel message and explain it to others. To that end, my hope is that uh, during potluck a little bit, then we'll take some time and try to say, get from Isaiah 53 to Jesus. 
how could you share the gospel if you came up alongside someone reading Isaiah 53? But as we do that, and as we seek to find ways to share the gospel with others, I also think we shouldn't overcomplicate things. The simple goal of telling others the good news is to get them to Jesus. It's, it means that, that we need to know where Jesus is in the scriptures, but we also just need to be so filled with ourselves with the knowledge of who he is and with a deep love for him that it just spills out when we're having conversations like this. Sinclair Ferguson, preaching on this text, said this. I love this. You get the sense that it wouldn't, it wouldn't have mattered if this man had been reading Leviticus. Philip would have been able to get him to Jesus because Philip was full of Jesus. Ferguson goes on, there isn't any mechanism, there isn't any trick in this. I can't bring great manuals that will tell you how to get from anywhere to Jesus. But when your heart is full of Jesus, you're able to get from anywhere to Jesus. When your heart is full of Jesus, you're able to get from anywhere to Jesus. I think we should know that Philip gets to Jesus through the scriptures. He doesn't tell the Ethiopian all these great stories about, you'll never believe how the Spirit's been leading me here to meet me. It doesn't even come up. And he doesn't say, you know, I've done some great miracles. Maybe we can do a miracle right now. I'm not going to impress you. No. He takes this man deeper into the word that is lying in his lap. The leading of the Spirit was so that Philip could lead this man into a deeper understanding of God's word. Just like Spurgeon was led down a certain street. Why? So he could hear a specific word from the scriptures. I think that's why when we hear these stories about people in the Muslim world and elsewhere who are coming coming to faith through dreams, it's not the dream that saves them. Rather, the dream leads them to someone who leads that person to Jesus by explaining to them the scriptures. Signs and wonders, Dreams and visions, miraculous leadings of the Spirit. These do not save people. They open up doors and they open up hearts so that people can hear the gospel as it's recorded in the scriptures. And as the Ethiopian listens to Philip, the Spirit opens his heart and he is convinced that Jesus truly is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior, that he is Lord. And this man was so convinced that when he saw some water out the window, He said to Philip, is there anything that would prevent me from being baptized? Is there any reason I can't announce this new faith that I have in Jesus? And the implied answer is no, because they both go down to the water and Philip baptizes him. He baptizes this man who was probably the first African convert. We hear this man's question, what would prevent me? And we might ask, what would hinder him? What would keep Philip from baptizing this man? The first reaction we might say is unbelief. You might have in verse 37 in your Bible, or you might have a a note that there is no verse 37, or you might have that in your your footnote or something like that. It's a verse that reads, in the King James Version, it reads, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. All, all the evidence from the different texts say that this is, was not a part of Luke's original work. And it seems as if it has been added here to give some sort of clarity, to show that the one thing that would have prevented this Ethiopian from being baptized would be that he didn't believe 
in the good news about Jesus. There's no parallel to the Philippian jailer, actually, that we'll look at later in the book of Acts. But the addition in Acts 37 seems to have been meant to clarify that this guy actually believed, and that's why Philip baptized him. But I think even without this verse, the text shows us that, that we can assume that Philip would be trusted to know whether or not this man's faith was, was genuine, because he baptized him. Philip's not going to baptize someone who doesn't believe the gospel. You know, there's really no point in being baptized unless you believe in Jesus. Baptism is a, it's a profession, it's a, a declaration that you believe that Jesus is the Savior, that he's your Savior, that he's the Son of God. It's, it's something that visibly displays the radical, invisible change that has happened in us when we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus alone to forgive us and to save our souls. And so if that change hasn't happened, Internally, then there's no point in being baptized with this external sign. Without belief, baptism is just getting wet. There's no point. But just as there's no point in being baptized unless you believe, I think we can also say from this text that nothing should prevent you from being baptized if you do believe. If you say in your heart that Jesus is Lord in Christ, if you say that through faith in Jesus, that, that you have died to sin and you've been raised in the power of his resurrection to walk in his ways and by his spirit, that nothing should prevent you from being baptized, from showing that to all people. So unbelief could have prevented this man from being baptized, but we should also recognize something else that Luke is doing here. And I actually think that the addition of verse 37 would take away from this this point, namely, the thought that there could be some sort of external factor about this man that would have prevented him from being baptized. Unbelief, that is certainly something that would keep someone from being baptized. But as Luke's talking about the expanse of the gospel, especially into the Gentile world, this question comes up, and the question is, can an external factor, can something about a person prevent them from being baptized in Jesus' name and being a believer in Jesus Christ. Because some people would read this text, and many maybe in that day and age would read this text and say, there are a lot of reasons why this guy shouldn't be baptized. He's not Jewish. He's a eunuch. He's an African. Is this how far this gospel is going? Is it going to all people? But Philip looks at this guy, he looks at all these external factors, he looks him up and down and he says the only thing that could keep him from being a part of God's kingdom would be if he was unwilling to bow before King Jesus. But since he is willing to, Philip baptizes this first African into the name of Jesus and then sends him on his way, presumably to take the gospel all the way back to Ethiopia. I was listening to an interview this week with an African-American comedian named W. Camille Bell. I know nothing about him than what I heard in this 15-minute interview on NPR. But in this interview, he was discussing a show he had done where he was searching out his ancestry. And for those of us who have roots uh, that extend into American history, they often lead to the Civil War and to slavery, as did Mr. Bells. And at one point in his research, he landed a church actually in Kentucky that his family, I think it was his mother's side, had been a part of generation. And he said this of that experience. He said, we went to this church, and in the church they had all these family records. And you could, have sort, you could sort of see that the church for the African-American community 
is where the census records are kept. Because there, we were always people. I sat in my car and I, I was thinking about the Ethiopian man in, in Acts 8. He was in my mind. And that last phrase then stood out to me. There, we were always people. Because in some ways, this Ethiopian unit, approached by a Jewish man, probably a Greek man, on, on a desert road in Israel, that moment set in motion that truth, the truth that the church, because of what Christ has done, is the place where everyone is a person, where everyone who believes is welcomed as a son and a daughter of God. Regardless of ethnicity, regardless of race, regardless of any other physical factor or lineage, the church and the gospel is where everyone is a person. The church and the gospel is what makes the prophecy of Isaiah 56 come true. This is the prophecy that would be just a little bit later in this man's scroll that Jesus makes come true. It says in Isaiah 56, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate thee from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, Everyone who keeps my Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. No external factor is able to hinder someone from becoming a child of God or being baptized into the community of believers because our acceptance is rooted in what Jesus has done. His faithfulness in all things and our faith in him. Can you imagine what becoming a Christian meant for this man? That he's welcomed in to be a part of the community. That he receives, it says here in this in Isaiah 56, a monument and name better than sons and daughters. That he's made a son and daughter. He's, he's brought into this community. He's not a foreigner who is held off from his welcoming. Therefore, the story doesn't read, and Philip, coming alongside the chair, realized that this man was an Ethiopian and said nothing to him. It doesn't say that when the Ethiopian asked, what would prevent me from being baptized, that Philip said, well, you're a eunuch, or, well, you're black. Because from the beginning, that kind of racism, that kind of exclusivism, has nothing to do with the church, and should have no place in the church of Jesus Christ today. Because in the church, Everyone is a person. Everyone is an eternal soul who can be redeemed through faith in Jesus. And everyone who believes is welcome as a son, as a daughter of God, and as our brother and sister in Jesus. I said this text proclaims to us, walk by the Spirit and you will be used by God in unlikely places in unforeseen ways. Just a, a note to say too that Philip's willingness to go to this man and to preach the gospel to him 
probably took the gospel to Africa. And I wonder, as we think about the nations that have come here who cannot hear the gospel in their own country, where countries are closed, could it be that God would have us cross paths? Maybe it's through the ministry of coffee. Maybe it's just through you being a nice person when you go to Aldi, which is one of the most multicultural places I go to during the week. And you open up the gospel to them. That you might be like Philip and send the gospel to a country where they can't get into right now, but because they hear the gospel here, that they can take it back to family and friends. But what's it going to look like for us to walk by the Spirit? From this passage, I would say that if we walk by the Spirit, first, we will trust that God is drawing people to Himself. We will trust, we will believe that God is actually drawing people to Himself. How could you deny that God wasn't drawing this man to Himself? We will trust that. So, that we'll trust that men and women from all nations are having their eyes open to the power of the Spirit and to His Word and are seeking for a Savior. That your friends, your family, your neighbors, and people you've never met are being drawn to Jesus through many different ways. And if we believe that, if we trust that God is drawing people to Himself, then the second thing, along with that, that we're going to believe is we're going to trust that God is leading us to the people that He's drawing to Himself. So here's the picture. God is drawing people to himself. And, God, and we're also going to trust that God is leading us to those people that he's drawing to himself. If he's doing it, he's going to cause our paths to intersect if we are walking by the Spirit. That as we walk by the Spirit, God's going to cause our paths to cross. Because Philip wasn't lucky. Right? It wasn't a chance meeting. Philip wasn't lucky. He was led. By God's grace and by His Spirit, and we too, by God's grace and by His Spirit, can be led to intersect with people that God is drawing to Himself if our eyes are open to it. So if we believe those things, if we trust that God is drawing people to Himself, and we trust that He is leading us to people that He's drawing to Himself, then we're going to walk through life with our, our eyes open, and we're going to look for His hand. We're going to be ready to see Him doing things. You're going to have your antennas up all the time saying, maybe I'm supposed to walk up to this chariot. Maybe it's not a chariot. Maybe I should walk up to this person. Maybe I should say something to, to my friend. This person that I haven't talked to in 20 years came to mind. Maybe I should write him a note. Maybe I should post something on Facebook for them to see. I don't know what it's going to look like, but we're going to be looking and we're going to be ready. And how are we going to be ready? Very quickly, five things. Practical steps, hopefully. Five things all begin with the letter F. Do you want to be ready when that intersection happens? You're open, your eyes are open, you're ready to see what God's going to do. The intersection happens, how are you going to be ready? Five things. First, fill your heart with Jesus. Fill your heart with Jesus. Jesus spilled out of Philip because he was filled full of Jesus. So fill your heart with Jesus. Let God's word reveal Christ to you each day. This is why we read the Bible every day. So we see Jesus. So when we cross paths with people, we can tell about Jesus. Let God's word reveal Christ to you each day so that you're always ready with the word that points people to Jesus. And as you read, you're praying also for an increasing love of Christ. Fill your heart with Jesus. Second, follow the Spirit. Follow the Spirit. When, when promptings and nudgings that you can't explain, promptings from the Spirit come into your life, 
Listen to them. Rise and go. Don't rise and flee. Don't, don't quench the Spirit's leading. Trust that God is guiding you by His Spirit. He's directing your paths and that He's going to open your mouth to speak the truth when you need to. Fill your heart with Jesus. Follow the Spirit. Freely ask questions. Freely ask questions. How does this conversation start? Because Philip asks a really good question. Actually, it's not rocket science, is it? What's the question that he asks? Do you understand what you're reading? <laughs> That's a simple question. Open the door for conversations with people by just being curious, by asking questions that lead it to deeper waters, by being aware of the people that surround you each day, by loving them enough to ask what's going on in your heart and your soul. Fill your heart with Jesus, follow the Spirit, freely ask questions, focus on God's Word. Focus on God's word. Now, don't do this in a really awkward way, but as conversation allows it, take people to the scriptures because the, the scriptures are unchangeable and they are spirit-empowered truth. And that's where we lead people to Jesus. We're going to take them to God's word because that's where the power is. So as opportunity comes, focus on God's word. It may mean that as you're filling your heart with Jesus each morning that you're saying, you know what? I need to just meditate on this verse so that I have something to say to someone if I run across them. I need to memorize some scriptures so that I have something to say to people when opportunity arises. Fill your heart with Jesus. Follow the Spirit. Freely ask questions. Focus on God's Word. And finally, fully believe that God can use you. Not just kind of believe. Fully believe that God can use you. That he's given us his spirit and he can use us in his work. Don't underestimate the power of God to use your everyday faithfulness to play a part. And not just a part, but a significant role in this never-stopping, ever-expanding, spirit-empowered spread of the good news of Jesus to all people for the glory of God. Walk by the spirit and God will use you for his glory and for the salvation of others. Walk by the spirit. You will be used by God in unlikely places and in unforeseen ways. You believe that. You believe that God can use you by His Spirit to change people's lives, to draw them into a relationship with Himself, maybe even to open up the door of salvation to an entire people group because of your faithfulness. I believe it. I believe God can do that through us as individuals and through us as a church.